The title for this evening's talk is The Pool and the Cesspool. By using this title, I mean to make a contrast between the pool, a body of clear water, and the cesspool, a body of contaminated water, sewage. Just as many of us have in our backyards. We certainly, Raquel and me certainly, do have such an arrangement. And I, that arrangement works for me as a metaphor for the counterpoint that goes on in our mind between what we can call good and evil, or morality and immorality, or purity and defilements. All these words have been used quite often. Now, the essential teaching of the Buddha is not that we ought to be good just for the sake of goodness, because of some absolute around goodness. The very fundamental teaching of the Buddha is that we are good insofar as this contributes to the end of suffering, because the essence of the Buddhist teachings is to bring suffering to an end. So his teaching is very pragmatic, as I'm going to emphasize throughout this weekend. Morality, then, is to be seeked, but because, not for its own sake, but because it's a preconditioning to the ending of suffering. Now, how do we implement morality? In some way, we have to find a way of preventing the contamination of the wholesome parts in ourselves by the unwholesome ones. Now, how do we pull this off? Well, the two basic methodologies for doing that, and that applies to the pool and the cesspool and applies to morality as well. One approach relies on separation, on segregation, on cordoning off the bad influences. The other, more complicated, relies on the ecology of the system whether it's ecology of the ground, in the case of the cesspool, or the ecology of the mind, in the case of the mind. 
There's an ecology of mind. So these two approaches I'm going to deal with in sequence. Let me start with the approach based on separation. In the world of disease, it's a cardinal rule to protect ourselves, to keep at some distance from pathogens. Keep away from food and air that may be contaminated. Pretty obvious. Same with the source of water that we drink. And to keep away from people, bodies of people, animals as well at times, that could be contagious. In other words, it's a rule to keep people with contagious diseases separated from the healthy ones. When my father was uh, very young, might have been two or three years old, this was in, uh, in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, his parents took into the house a young boy who was ill. And he was ill with tuberculosis with TB. In, in no time, everybody in the home was contaminated. My father survived. His brother did not. His parents did not. He was an orphan at a very early age. I mean, one could tell many stories like that. This is the one that touches me very deeply. It shaped the mind of my father in many ways, and the body too, in some ways. And I'm going to, to another model of this, uh, going back to the pool and the cesspool in our backyard. There's a pool of water from where, where a well is located. There's a well that gets the, a well with a pump that gets the water from that pool. And some distance, maybe a hundred feet away, there's a cesspool where all our sewage goes, all our used up water and sewage goes. It's very important to keep them at a reasonable distance. Any of you who lives in rural areas probably knows that. The amazing thing is that this system should work. 
It does. The same type of approach can also work in the realm of mind. At the level, say, of interpersonal relationships, the teachings are very clear in encouraging us to stay away from what is called fools. Stay away from fools. And let me read that. If one finds no worthy friend, this is from the Buddha, in, uh, in the, one of the collections of sutras, of scriptures, if one finds no worthy friend, no virtuous, steadfast companion, then as a king leaves, leaves his conquered realm, walk like an elephant in the woods alone. Better it is to walk alone than alone. There is no companionship with fools. Walk alone and do no evil at ease like an elephant in the woods. But, it, of course, in the sphere of mind, it's not just a question of keeping fools away, pushing them away, not having anything to do with them. Because, speaking for myself, the greatest fool is here, too, you see. <laughs> There's a foolishness of, of my own mind that I have to be careful with. It's a question, then, of keeping unhelpful thoughts out of the way. Says the Buddha, the wise, sorry, the wise should cleanse himself of what, of what defiles the mind. Very clear. Now, Traditionally, this separation, both from, from sort of unhealthy influences from other people or unhealthy influences within ourselves, that is traditionally accomplished by separation, by creating a monastic community away from influences from the worldly sphere. And these monks would abide by a set of rules that have to do not only with not contacting or, or damaging other people, but also with behavior in their own mind. The, in the Buddhist tradition, these rules are called the patimokkha. Forgive me if that's not the right pronunciation. I don't know how to pronounce these things, but 
should be close enough. That's the way it reads. And the Parimokha contains 227 rules. Quite, quite a tall order to remember, just to remember. In coming to retreats like this, we also abide by, I could call it, something I could call a, a mini patimoka. Only five rules, five precepts. And as it's customary to remind you of those precepts, I'll do so in this moment while commenting about what they accomplish. The five precepts are, number one, no killing. In the context of the retreat, it largely applies of not killing bugs, for instance, which we may be tempted to do. The second precept, no stealing, often worded as not taking that which, which is not freely given just being respectful of the patrimony of others. Third, no speaking. I talked about that already. And indeed, is both speaking with others and talking to ourselves insofar as possible, not doing it. Fourth, no sexual activity. Again, is protecting others and protecting ourselves. There's no implication that there's anything wrong with speaking or anything wrong, basically, with sexual activity. Simply, this is not the place to do so. And the fifth precept, no intoxicants, not taking intoxicants. In going down this list, I want you to realize once again that is, it's, it's a way of separating ourselves from outer influences that can be unhelpful during the retreat, and also a way of separating ourselves from inner influences that can be unhelpful. Just, just consider killing a bug. The point is not so much to protect the bug, but to protect the mind from indulging in cruelty. Now, all this is very helpful and important. And yet, and yet, there is nothing absolute in all of this. It's this barriers of separation, of keeping things away, the barriers of convenience. I was uh, surprised and delighted to find this passage in one of these sutras. Uh, this is by the Buddha. She says, uh, somebody asked the Buddha, sorry, Ananda, the Buddha's 
helper, assistant, close associate, asked the Buddha, Venerable Sir, there are people who live differentially towards the Buddha, towards you, who might, when you have gone, create a dispute in the Sangha, among the community that is, about livelihood and about the Patimoka. Such a dispute, continues Ananda, such a dispute would be for the harm and unhappiness of many, for the loss, harm, and suffering of gods and humans. And now the Buddha answers. I would add, he doesn't say here, now, now, Ananda. Now, now, Ananda. And now he says, a dispute about livelihood or about the Patimokkha would be trifling, Ananda. Trifling. But should a dispute arise in the Sangha about the path or the way, such a dispute would be for the harm and unhappiness of many, for the loss, harm, and suffering of gods and humans. So there's a, a hierarchy there. The path is important, the practice is important, but the rules, yes, helpful, but we're not going to, to get all heated up around them. In fact, this method is based on cordoning, cordoning off, on separating off bad influences, quarantining bad influences to protect, protect our water supply in one case, our bodies in the case of the seas, our minds in the case of unhealthfulness, are helpful, but by themselves are inadequate. They couldn't possibly accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish. They can only work if supplemented by processes which are capable of healing. Let me take up the case of septic systems, you know. Uh, as I mentioned, the, uh, our pool of water with the well and the pump is just a relatively short distance away from the sewage. And what keeps the, the germs from the sewage to get into the pool? Not so much the distance. It's the ecology of the soil and of the cesspool. It is the fact that the self-cesspools self are planned and calculated so that they will become an incubation ground for microbes capable of degrading all the stuff that goes there, so that the potential pathogens, I mean pathogens do go there, of course, the pathogens get starved. 
and they can't walk from the cesspool to the pool. They, they simply don't have the energy to do it. It's been studied, and it works. That's the main thing. So the operative principle here, over and above separation, is ecological healing, which I call ecological healing. Much the same can be said about safeguarding our bodies from disease. Surely, quarantining may be appropriate at times. My grandparents, my father's parents made a horrible mistake in bringing this young person with TB to the homes. Sure. But the main defense is every time the systems in our own, own body that can heal ourselves. Typically, in this case, it's not the only, but the main one is the so-called immune system. Now, the interesting thing about the immune system is that it equips itself with defenses, it generates defenses, as a result of having been touched by infection in the first place. Then it reacts. So it is often ad advantageous and, and uh, fortunate to get infected at a time when our bodies can respond to the infection, perhaps with a very low dose of uh, uh, pathogen, so that the body develops defenses. When I was a child, antibiotics were not in discovered yet. Every time I got hit by a bug, I'd keep bed for whatever it is, uh, three, five, ten days, whatever it was, until I recovered. And, and my mother would cherish that. She, she knew that at that time, given the conditions of our life, if I could react to illness, much better. Even today, for children to be infected with German measles can be a plus when they're infected at a time when they can overcome it the infection well enough. Of course, then there are vaccines. Vaccines are a way of doing this systematically. Germs are actually collected, killed or altered so that they would not produce a disease, injected into us, and we build up antibodies. Sure, this is a, a medical system that works. Why not? I'm always fascinated by the stories from this extraordinary place in the world called Varanasi, the sacred city of India.
one of the one of the major sacred cities of India, where bodies are large numbers of people want to die there and be cremated there, and the ashes are dumped into the river, the Ganges. The funny thing is that there are a few exceptions to the dumping of the of the, of the cremating the bodies. There are some bodies, some corpses, which are dumped into the river without cremation. And one of the three categories that I'm interested in now is the category of individuals who died in the past, nowadays it doesn't happen very often, to died of smallpox. Sounds extraordinary. We would imagine that is the last body that would dump without cremating on the country. We'd heat it up twice as long. I don't know for sure because there's no studies about this, but I imagine, and, and there's, I think, good reason to this guess, that this is because by exposing large numbers of people to a dilute germ of uh, smallpox, you created immunity. And in keeping with this, one of the major temples in Varanasi is to the goddess Shitala. Shitala is the goddess of smallpox. They have a special goddess for smallpox, and she is characterized by being, at the same time, benevolent and malevolent. That's what the sacred texts tell us. Well, it could go on and on, you know. And uh, just I have a little note there about uh, what happens to most of us who go from here to Mexico and get hit by all these bugs that go under the generic name of Moctezuma's Revenge. <laughs> Moctezuma, a traditional Mexican god, apparently takes it out on us to get even. Mexicans don't, don't have a Moctezuma's Revenge. <laughs> we do. So, to end this up, about illness and about cesspools. Indeed, ecological healing is essential, is very important. Separation along, alone wouldn't do the job. And this ecological healing offers mechanisms that rely on exposure to that very thing which needs to be eradicated.
What about our own minds? Do we keep them pure and separated, unapproached by the difficult things? Or, or do we let them explore and come to understand that which is un unhealthy for them? Say we're sitting, as you will soon enough, and the mind over and over again gets, gets hit by a compelling thought, an unhealthy thought, whatever it is, you choose it, you have your own. Each one has their own unhealthy fantasies. I'm not going to project or even reveal my own. <laughs> if we move on to suppress them, that only heightens the compulsion. It's not going to work. Don't think of that beautiful woman, you know. All of that enough is to enough to start a fire going. What we need to do is to become familiar with the compulsion and develop a sense of where it comes from and where it takes us and the suffering that it brings to us. Feeling all of this deep inside us knowing it in our bones, not just thinking about it, knowing it in our bones as we sit. This is in practice. Practice gives us all this space to really feel deeply. And so we need to allow some of these germs, if you wish, to continue with the metaphor, these pathogenic, pathological germs, to touch us and, and feel them and discover how we, we can process them rather than keeping them forever outside and we locked inside. And, and so this is true for practice, of course, but it's also true for the midst of our life, you know. Say, say in, in the midst of life, we, we feel anger. So, the separation method, which truly may have some, some reasonable situations where it should work, like, for instance, not appropriate to, in many situations, to display anger publicly with others. But, <coughs> but not suppress it from ourselves. Let ourselves feel that anger. Not banish it, not coordinate off. Let ourselves feel it with the fullness of our mind. 
and, and then and only then can we come to understand its futility. At, at a different level is true, but you will see that this connects with what I'm, what I'm saying. A, a few weeks ago, the Barack Obama, whom perhaps know who he is by now, um, sort of competing for the, to be candidate of the Democrats to the presidency of this country. Barack Obama made a speech that I found absolutely extraordinary. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm not for him or against him, whatever. I mean, it's, it's not that I'm trying to, to make a case for Barack Obama. I'm certainly making a case for his speech. Because he had the gumption to address the issue the racial issue head-on. The address some of the most to toxic stuff in the public arena, in politics. It had to do, as some of you may know, with uh, comments that his pastor, Reverend Wright, had made, which were very inflammatory, um, very racially inspired, if you wish. And so Barack Obama could, of course, condemn it, say, I don't have anything to do with that. That would be the separation method. But he didn't do that. Let me share with you what I have here. Oops. Where is Barack Obama. Um, he says, such anger is not always productive, meaning the anger that Reverend Wright expressed. But the anger is real. It is powerful. And to simply wish it away, to condemn it without understanding its roots, only serves to widen the chasm of misunderstanding that exists between the races. Then, this is my comments now, then he went on to speak about the resentments of white Americans. And he said that also to wish away these resentments. He says, I quote, this too blocks the path of understanding. In other words, if a Ku Klux Klan member speaks up his mind or her mind, whatever, we, we need to listen to feel that to understand that. So politicians usually skirt these controversial issues. Obama, to his credits, didn't. He went into the cesspool. 
and argued for a cleansing that takes advantage of the capacity of the mental cesspool to clean itself. On this topic, there's a, a teacher that I find delightful to read. Her name is Pema Chodron, and in a book called Starts Where You Are, she has a lovely chapter that's labeled, very appropriately for this topic, Poison as Medicine. Let me read you a little bit from that chapter. In the Buddhist teachings, the messy stuff is called klesa or kilesa, which means poison. Boiling it all down to the simplest possible formula, there are three main poisons, passion, aggression, and ignorance. We could talk about these in different ways. For example, craving, aversion, and couldn't care less. Addictions of all kinds come under the category of craving, which is wanting, wanting, wanting. Feeling that we have to have some kind of resolution. Aversion encompasses violence, rage, hatred, and negativity of all kinds, as well as a garden variety called irritation. And ignorance, nowadays, it's called Delight, denial. The pith instruction of all Buddhist teachings is whatever you do, don't try to make those unwanted feelings go away. Well, that's an unusual thought. It's not our habitual tendency to let those feelings hang around. Our habitual tendency is definitely to make those things to try to make those things go away. And, and further down she says again, whatever you do, don't try to make the poisons go away. Because if you're trying to make them go away, you're lose, losing your wealth along with your neurosis. All this messy stuff is your richness. But saying this once is not going to convince you. If nothing else, however, it could cause you to wonder about these teachings and begin to be curious whether they possibly could be true, which might inspire you to try them for yourself. The main point is that when Mortimer walk, walks by, by the way, I, I hope nobody is called Mortimer here. <laughs> she means so-and-so, right? But anyway, she continues to say Mortimer. When Mortimer walks by and triggers your craving or your aversion or your ignorance or your jealousy or your arrogance or your feeling of worthlessness, when Mortimer walks by and a feeling arises, that could be like a little bell going off in your head or a light bulb going on. Here's an opportunity 
to awaken your heart. Yet, when poison arises, uh, uh, poisons arise, we usually counter them with two main tactics. Step one, Mortimer walks by. Step two, Clesa arises. It's hard to separate these two, first two steps. Step three, we either act out or repress, which is to say we either physically or mentally attack Mortimer or talk to ourselves about what a jerk he is and how he's going to get, e we are going to get even with him or else we repress these feelings. Repressing could actually come under the category of ignorance. When you see Juan, or again, don't mind if that's your name. When you see Juan or Juanita or Mortimer, you just shut down. Maybe you don't even want to touch what they remind you of, so you just shut down. There's another com common form of repression which has to do with guilt. Juan walks by. Aversion arises. You act out, and then you feel guilty about. You think you're a bad person to be hating one, and so you repress it. So she goes on to say, when these poisons arise, the instruction is to drop the storyline, which means instead of acting out or repressing, use the situation as an opportunity to feel your heart, to feel the wound. Use it as an opportunity to touch that soft spot. If somebody, someone, someone, so if someone comes along and shoots an arrow into your heart, it's fruitless to stand there and yell at the person. It would be much better to turn your attention to the fact that there's an arrow in your heart and to relate to that wound. When we do that, the three poisons become three seeds of how to make friends with ourselves. They give us a chance to work on patience and kindness, the chance not to give up on your ourselves and not to act out or repress. They give us a, the chance to change our habits completely. This it is what helps both ourselves and others. This is instruction on how to turn unwanted circumstances into the path of enlightenment. By following it, we can transform all that messy stuff that we usually push away into the path of awakening, awakening, reconnecting with our soft heart, our clarity, and our ability to open further. As you said in the title, Poison as Medicine.
And so, as with the ecology of the septic systems in the soil, and the pool, and the cesspool, and the ecology of the microbial flora in our bodies, to deal with the unwholesome, to deal with the unsalubrious in our minds, we need to give full support to the ecology of our minds. The Buddha was very clear about this. We need to become familiar with our unhelpful tendencies in order to get out of them. I'll just quote one more thing. From the Sutta Nipata, uh, attributed to the Buddha, rightfully, I think, he says, the wise, they don't conjure, don't yearn, don't proclaim utter purity, and tying the tied-up knot of grasping, they don't form a desire for anything at all in the world. The Brahman, that is the, the wise person, the enlightened person, the Brahma, gone beyond territories, has nothing that, or knowing or seeing, he's grasped. And impassionate for passion, not impassioned for dispassion. Yeah, that's very important. He says, it's not impassioned for passion, but also is not impassioned for dispassion. In other words, it's open. He has, again, talking about the wise, he has nothing here that his grasp as supreme. Nothing to grasp on to. Not even purity. Just mind minding itself in full awareness of all there is. Let's sit for a few minutes in silence, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.